Welcome to the Soundweavers podcast, the Loadbang edition. Loadbang joins us from New York City to discuss their role in cultivating a new sonic landscape as a chamber ensemble comprising trumpet, trombone, bass clarinet, and baritone voice. We hope you enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. We are so excited this week to be joined by the incredible Loadbang, who have been described as extra cool by the Baltimore Sun, a formidable new music force by Time Out New York and purely inventive by the New York Times. So you can tell that they are an incredible group. Today we are also joined by my co-host Blair. Hey Blair, how are you? Hello, I'm good. And without further ado, we have two members from Loadbang. We have the wonderful Jeff Gavitt, who is their baritone singer, and Andy Kozar, their trumpet player. So hi, guys. Thank you so much for joining with us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. So just to get started, when and how did Loadbang get started? And how did you decide on this instrumentation? Because you guys are pretty unique. Yeah, we, um, so the, the original group, which was Jeff and Will, our trombonist, and I, and Philip Everall, who's a tremendous bass clarinetist who, who moved back to Australia, we were all doing the contemporary performance program at the Manhattan School of Music. Um, so Will and I had started, you know, we, we were sort of this brand new program. We were in the first year of it. Uh, and they didn't totally know what to do with us. So they put us in the <laughs> abandoned library there, um, which was, yes. yeah, it was actually like um, really lucky for us. It was great. It was a huge insurance liability, I imagine for them, but it worked out okay for us. Uh, and so Will and I started hosting these things called power concerts, which is actually where we got the power chat uh, thing that we're doing now. So the idea was that on Tuesday night, awesome. uh, <clears throat> excuse me, from 10 p.m. to 10.20, like a power nap, uh, we would do these very short concerts. So Will and I would either play or we'd have our friends play. We'd use it as an opportunity um, to try stuff out. And so on April 1st, so April Fool's Day of 2008, uh, the power concert that we did featured the very first load bang performance. So at the time we had all been spending a lot of time together, right? Essentially like spending our 
uh, refund checks at Toast down the street and talking about music <laughs> a lot, but not actually playing yeah. together because, of course, there was no instrumentation. Um, so we just decided to give it a whirl. So Jeff wrote the first piece. Uh, we did an Earl Brown graphic score. Uh, and then because it was April Fool's Day, we sang two barbershop quartets. Uh, <laughs> I love that. That's brilliant. Yeah, well, the singing of the barbershop quartets wasn't necessarily brilliant, but it was certainly fun. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it entertained everyone. It, uh, yeah, I hope so. Uh, and those recordings probably exist somewhere, but hopefully will never be found. So it, uh, yeah, you know, so it, it ended up being super fun, right? Just to play with your best friends, despite the fact that the instrumentation you had was, um, you know, unusual at best, right? Like there was no, there was no repertoire. There was literally no repertoire. Like we've, we've looked and we've continued to look uh, over the years to see like, is there any, was there any precedent that we missed? But there's, as, as far as we know, there is nothing for, uh, male voice, trumpet, trombone, and bass clarinet that existed before we wrote pieces and started commissioning them. I've got to be honest, it's a great lineup and I've been privileged enough to see you guys live uh, a number of times from Lake George, but it's such a cool setup and the fact that you've made it work so well is just, it, it's incredible. And you guys are such an inspiration to, to me and I know a lot of other chamber groups, especially those who focus on new music and uh, more quirky instrumentation. So talking about your actual performances and the music that you play, could you describe the style and genre of most of the work that you do? And can you give some examples of different composers that you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's tricky. Only because the genre thing is like, it kind of means something, but it also kind of doesn't mean anything. Kind of boxes you into something, well, so yeah. please break the so, box. So <laughs> I think from the very beginning, um, in our very first conversations about who we wanted to be commissioning, who we wanted to be working with, um, stylistically what we were interested in doing, the one constant was that we all just really liked playing good music. So I realized that sounds um, maybe a little bit uh, reductionist or kind of dumb, but basically we, we saw a lot of other ensembles who were really, really great doing very high level work, but sort of getting pigeonholed um, to, to being, you know, sort of X ensemble. Oh yeah. They play that type of music by those types of composers. Um, I think for us, it was really important that we stay diverse in terms of style, like stylistically diverse, um, right at the very beginning. So I think in our first year we had, or in our first handful of years, we had pieces from composers like Reiko Futing. Um, so sort of, European modernist. I'm not sure. Raiko's music is so um, sort of incredible and lovely. It it almost like defies these sort of typical characterizations. But David Lang wrote us a piece. Um, soon after that, yes. Charles Warren and wrote a piece. We had Hannah Lash writing us these sort of monodramas. And um, in the, in recent years, we've had Kaya Chernovin wrote us a really lovely piece. George Lewis. And so we've been really trying to make sure. Um, to be not an ensemble that plays one type of music, but in a, an ensemble that plays um, really good music really well, <laughs> right? Like that's and part of, that's part been of how kind we make decisions uh, in general as a group, but also specifically when it comes to programming, 
is that we all do everything by consensus. Uh, all four of us make the decisions together. So when it comes to programming, we don't all have the exact same taste. You know, we don't all love the exact same types of music or sounds or genres or whatever equally. You know, there's obviously big overlaps, but there's certain things that only one of us really likes or that one of us really doesn't like or, you know, <laughs> that... Uh, but we, we talk about this and, uh, you know, we make a joint decision on, on the kind of music that we want to do and the kind of people that we want to work with. And I think it's been, it's been really rewarding to have a huge variety of things in our repertoire and to not feel like, uh, I feel like it's easier to get ground down when you're doing the same kind of thing. Like if we all had, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the main categories of, of uh, contemporary music, but there's uh, Bleep Bloop, <laughs> Squeaky Gate, <laughs> and Fire in a Pet Shop. <laughs> so I, I think you're missing uh, Space Whale noises as well. Space That's, whale, you yeah, have yeah, to yeah. have the Space Whales in there. <laughs> yeah, those, those fall under Squeaky Gate depending oh, okay. on how big the gate is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a subgenre, but you know, if we were just doing one one kind of of thing, I don't know, it gets boring. That's true. I think that's that's really a really good way of looking at it, especially. We've being... been doing it for twelve years, so it's like <laughs> you, you, you know, don't you're want to get, get bored, bored working with each other, especially because you work together so well. Speaking about the large amount of repertoire that you've accumulated, we noticed that you run a composition competition for the past few years. Could you talk to us a little bit about that process? What got you started? What are the ins and outs of running a competition like this? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I think that when we did it the first time, which was probably back in like 2010 or 11 or something, maybe. We did it wrong. Uh, <clears throat> we did a bad job, yeah. So we did a uh commission competition or a uh, call for scores essentially so what we were asking for was people to submit pieces um for load banks instrumentation and then we'd pick the one that we liked the most and premiere it in new york um you know in retrospect even just saying it out loud is like oh that was so dumb uh <clears throat> so we immediately we got very lucky we got a really great piece by a composer named gary philo um but we realized a couple of things through that initial process. Uh, one, and probably the most important, is that it's deeply unethical to ask people to do work for free to write a piece for an instrumentation that if we don't pick the, if your piece isn't the one that we pick, the odds of it being played ever are very, very low. Uh, so <clears throat> the other thing that we noticed was that uh, we are hoping to be working with, we're hoping to be working at a very high level across the board. So that's with the composers that we're working with at, at the level that we ourselves are working at and the level that we're holding ourselves to. Um, and, you know, generally people that are willing to write a piece with no potential uh premiere or performance maybe you're people that are like younger at their younger in their career or at a different point than necessarily the type of people that we were trying to attract so the next year we totally changed it and turned it into a commission competition so what we were asking for then is for people just to submit a piece of chamber music that they feel strongly shows the work that they do between two to seven players um 
and then we just ask for a recording of it so we can hear it. And we don't, you know, if there is a piece that a composer has that maybe has male voice or maybe has trumpet and trombone or something, we say that that's helpful because it can offer us some insight into, you know, comfort. Make sure they know how to experience. write for the instrument. Right. I have this as a harpist all the time. You know that <laughs> it's <laughs> right. not a piano. <laughs> Uh, and we just, we just to make sure that, um, but we, we also make sure that we let people know that that's not, if they send in a string quartet, it's not going to hurt them in the process. Uh, and so then we sift through all of these pieces and we go through, uh, a large sort of judging process. Uh, and then the winner of the project, the winner of the competition, then we commission to write a piece, uh, in for a future season based on their schedule. I think that's a really good way of doing it. That's I'm probably going to take that and run with that. <laughs> but... Yeah, it worked a lot yeah. better. The there, you know, there's a couple other tweaks that we every year we have a discussion about. Like, okay, this needs to change for next year. Ways to streamline, um, ways to make sure that people are reading the directions so that we actually get oh, yes. what's being asked for. <laughs> um, so in the past we in the past couple of years we've switched it up a little bit. We used to just receive emails from composers that were interested in submitting, which meant that uh, the email inbox like four days before the competition was a real nightmare. Yeah, I can um, imagine. <laughs> and so we a couple of years ago we started using a thing called Cognito Forms, which is um, we can put the HTML into our website and then people can apply, but everything gets uploaded directly to this websites cloud so then we have access to all of that stuff um and in the past couple of years we also made it very clear that we don't accept midi Good. um okay. just because that doesn't tell us a whole lot um yes yeah, so, uh, midi tends to suffer from broken metronome syndrome as well for some things yeah so um but yeah so we've we've tweaked it and every year we make little changes to sort of tighten it up um but it's been a really fun. It's been a really fun project, and it also um, has served us in in terms of showing us composers and people that are doing really awesome music that we just don't know about. Like for whatever reason, we just haven't met them, or they're not. You know, you can get very easily sucked into who your scene is, uh, and this allows us to look outside of the scene. Uh, to see like who's doing cool stuff. And we're very lucky in that we, you know, every year we get, uh, how many, how many applications we get last year, Andy? We were like 220 or somewhere around there. Yeah. Heavens. I was about to wow. ask that. Yeah. It's really, it's really Ooh. wonderful. Well, another, another thing that we were, we felt very strongly about implementing was that we don't have an application fee. I don't know if you remember some years ago, there was, there was a, a high, uh, profile competition where a group asked for, I believe, $50 application fees for a call for scores, and there was a huge outcry about it, and a, they ended up uh, changing and, and fixing what they were doing, but we we saw that right around the same time we were working on our own, and we thought, oh my god, like, uh, we, we want to make this just uh, a way for people to get things to us with, uh, you know, relatively few barriers in that, in that regard. Uh, but so we get 200 and 20 things to look at and we all sit together in a room and we pull up the score on a big screen you know plug the hdmi into the tv and look at the score and listen to the recordings and we've been so lucky that every every year we have 
a handful of pieces that just like absolutely blow us away from people that we've never heard of. And that's always so exciting that we all, we all, uh, the way that we do the first sort of round is uh, we listen through and people decide like, am I, I'm not on board with this or I'm sort of done with this. And, and then we, we move on things that people don't have a negative feeling about essentially. <laughs> uh, but a lot of the times in that first round, we, we end up sort of looking at each other and we're like, oh, we've been listening to this for like many minutes, just like sitting and listening to this thing together. Like, obviously we need to like move this on to the next round so we can get through the rest of them. But we're just like, you know, it's so exciting to hear something, something brand new to us. And we get to have that every year. So it's it's hard enough, as you were saying, to find compositions for your own ensemble. So I'm curious, do you also collaborate with others to create larger settings? Yeah, we've done uh, a couple projects where we've expanded. The most recent one is with uh, Hannah Lash, who wrote uh, a really incredible piece for us called The Shepherdess and the Chimney Sweep that we did with American Opera Projects. Um, that we've given performances at Yale and in Santa Fe and Albuquerque and in New York, where she collaborated with us not only as the composer and librettist, but harpist and dancer. Oh, wow. I didn't realize piece. that she danced so, as well. I, we, didn't, we didn't either, and she's extraordinarily wow, I, good. Yeah. That woman is just, uh, she's one of my idols. <clears throat> I wish that I could write music as well as she does, and she plays so beautifully as well. Didn't know she also danced. That's really cool. Yep, there's just, add that to the list. just one more thing, right? <laughs> yeah, add it to the list. So we uh, we did that with Hannah. Um, we've done some sort of larger projects drawing on all the, the load bang players with uh, my vocal group, Ekmelis. Uh, we did a project a couple of years ago where we did a uh, Matthias Spalinger piece, uh, the title of which is like 20 oh, words long, and I can't remember what it was. Uh, but we have uh, an ensemble of eight voices and eight instruments in that. And the instruments included uh, five trombones, uh, oboe, clarinet, and trumpet. So we were able to have me as part of my vocal group, along with all the instrumentalists of Load Bang, and then some other folks involved in this giant, beautiful uh, Spalling piece. That's gorgeous. Uh, that's a lot of trombones. Good heavens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was saying the same thing. We've also, um, in the past couple years, we've started a project commissioning pieces for load bang and string Sweet. orchestra. That's awesome. Uh, so th thinking of it like a sort of a strange yeah. concerto grosso type of thing. And the composers that we've been having write those are people that have already written us wonderful pieces that we're touring and playing all the time. Um, and they deeply understand like what yeah. it is that we do. Um, and so that's, that was a partnership that we, sort of an ongoing partnership with String Orchestra of Brooklyn for some of them, also with Chatter, uh, which is a really incredible presenter based in Albuquerque. Uh, they put together a string orchestra once a year or so for us to come down and premiere that's a bunch awesome. of new pieces. So that's been another way, it's super, super fun. And we're, um, we did a New York performance of those pieces uh, just this past February and went into the studio with it. So we're working on a record of a bunch of these pieces. Uh, and so that's been another way of taking, you know, sort of the load bang thing and branching out a bit. Um, you know, I think our main focus for the longest time, and it still is our main focus, is developing a repertoire for this specific instrumentation. 
Yeah. Uh, that... And that also, oh, sorry. No, Jeff. no, 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 it's okay. You keep going. I was just going to say it, it allows us to give, like the pieces have legs then because it's harder for us. You know, we, we love doing these pieces for us in strings or with Hannah. Um, but, and the more that you add, the harder it is, you know, it gets harder and harder and harder to get future performances and we, and it much, and much harder certainly to tour them, which is in our touring is where a lot of these pieces get Mm -hmm. repeat performances. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really interested in doing these projects that add to us. Um, but still the main focus has been just developing this very specific repertoire so that we can, yeah. we can play it a bunch. Cause if we're not going to play it, you know, who else is? Yeah. I, I just wanted to add that the piece that we played that we are not going to be able to tour with because of the five trombones, et cetera, uh, unless something extraordinary happens is called Über den frühen Tod Fräuleins Anna Augusta Mark Gräfen zu Baden. Bless you. <laughs> That's memorable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. Oh, goodness. Um, so you guys are just, aside from being a wonderful chamber group, you've amassed it's such a wide touring schedule as a group, but you're also teachers and you have your own solo careers and your other groups. How do you work around all of this individual, uh, all of this individuality and also working within the group? Uh, for me, currently, I have the vocal group that I've already spoken about that I direct called Ekmeles, and we do, uh, you know, seven to ten shows a year and we focus on microtonal music oh that's so uh, cool. so we have a lot of uh a lot of rehearsing <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> i can imagine <laughs> um yeah i i only teach uh just private voice currently so my main focus are these these two ensembles and uh various freelancing things in terms of uh keeping it all together it's just uh it's a matter of just paying attention to my calendar really (laughs) we're doing you know scheduling is like the the most important thing about our careers i think like in in a certain way making sure that i can jigsaw everything together and plan do i have enough time to do all these shows do i have enough time to learn these new pieces in between these shows you know we've done uh we have a repertoire of in load bang we've premiered over 350 pieces Wow. So if you look at <laughs> uh, how many years we've been doing this, which is just over 12, you realize that we're learning, what is that, a little under 30 pieces a year for Load Bang, 30 premieres a year. And that's not counting all of the other work that we do. Um, so just the the volume of music and keeping keeping ahead on that, is is really the main challenge for me because i don't have uh like keys to push to find the notes so it takes me a little bit longer to to learn all of the stuff that we're doing that's one of the main challenges yeah i mean i think i think just to sort of piggyback on what jeff said the the scheduling is really important so we have um a bunch of different threads of scheduling that goes back and forth and we're scheduling I mean, you know, scheduling now is kind of funny because we're scheduling, but like, I don't know, is it going to happen? Probably not. I, but we'll just keep scheduling because if we're not scheduling, then what the hell am I supposed to do yeah, all day? I think um, our my my scheduling philosophy right now is uh, we're going to pretend that everything is happening and we're going to schedule them. And then at the point where someone decides it's canceled, it's canceled. And then we just keep on, just keep, keep pretending. 
And don't don't stop believing. <laughs> uh, and Rosie, you had mentioned like the idea of, or I, or I heard it this way, the idea of like how do we juggle all of our individual interests and careers and stuff too, as, in addition to load banging. Um, to be honest, I think like when Will is successful on a solo thing, right? Yeah, I know he goes, whenever I see him on Instagram, he's always coming back from a trombone concerto somewhere. And I'm just like, how are you doing this? Yeah, well, you know, the sort of, or like when Adrian posts a cool thing of, you know, like whenever one of us does something awesome on our own, that also, it helps load bang, right? Because like we all, part of our identity is wrapped up in, in load bang, right? So when one of us does something cool that reflects well on the ensemble. So it, um, the juggling of it is more a scheduling thing than, than anything else. And I think the more active we all are, the better it is for everybody. Um, so that, that's been a really, really fun thing. Uh, in terms of like, we, we also still find that we're learning, right? We're learning how to do this. Um, and so in terms of scheduling or in terms of juggling, like sometimes we get to a point where we realize maybe this was last season, Jeff, I can't remember. Um, we just had, it was too much. We just had too much stuff back to back. Yeah. We, we, we had a, a sort of big block of things and we had a certain kind of travel or a certain kind of work, uh, where we ended up, uh, you know, sort of traveling all night through, you know, difficult travel, difficult circumstances, difficult music, and it all, it all (laughs) added up to be a little bit too much. So we're always, we're always rebalancing what, what is best for each of us as our, as our own personal circumstances change. And I mean, uh, Adrian lives in Costa Rica. Andy, uh, lives mainly in outside of Boston. I live in Manhattan, Willows in Brooklyn and has a child. So, I mean, Adrian has two kids in Costa Rica. So we have the changing circumstances of our lives have, have required us to, to change how we deal with being part of this ensemble. It's always changing. Yeah. In the past, I think when we were all in New York, um, we could kind of rehearse whenever and wherever but the way it is now is that we just have to plan like we have to plan a rehearsal six months in advance basically right and we have to book longer periods of time and just know that like we have this is the amount these are the hours that we have so we also have um started getting very scheduled in our rehearsals too like sort of sub scheduling so putting together a rehearsal map essentially so like jeff will put together my trio does this as well we we were all in eastman together and now uh, caroline's in new york um adam is in gettysburg and i'm obviously in rochester now but moving to oregon but yeah we schedule everything so much so it's really interesting hearing you guys say that it's as been well. yeah jeff um Jeff or Will usually take the lead on that, uh, just knowing that, okay, we, we're doing all of this repertoire. This is a piece we've performed 30 times already. Let's give it like- It's gonna take five minutes. Let's give it, right, let's <laughs> give it 10 minutes and we're not gonna play the whole thing. We're just gonna go and focus in on the spots that are always tricky and do that kind of polished work. Um, and that has been a really good way also of making sure that we don't get to the end of a rehearsal and think like, uh-oh. <laughs> Like we missed, we missed a piece and I guess we'll do it live. Right. Uh, so that, that has allowed us, I think, to, 
in all of the changes in all of the sort of negotiations for time, make sure that we have like quality control, essentially, that we're still performing at a very, very high level. Um, because that's like at the end of the day, that's one of the most important things. That's one of the things that's the most satisfying is yeah. playing well uh, and like doing a good job, which should be fairly obvious, but it isn't always. I, I love that. I think that's that's really incredible. And uh, again, especially because you're all spread around in different countries now even. So that's, that's really impressive that you're managing to do what you do. <laughs> awesome. 2020 has been a challenge for the musicians and music field between the pandemic and social movements. How are you finding that it's impacting you both personally and professionally? Did I hear right that you got stuck in the UK during the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, so we were on a tour uh, that in retrospect, maybe we shouldn't have gone on. Uh, (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it was I don't know if you all remember the beginning of March. Uh, when everything was going to be fine forever. Uh, uh, aren't we still in March? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still Definitely. March now, right? Yeah. It's just going to go away. <laughs> everything it's, is fine. It's 100 days of March. Yeah, so we left on the 7th, maybe, or 8th of March to uh, the UK, and we had shows and student readings scheduled around... What was our what was our first one? started in Southampton. Right, Southampton, and then... And then up to Maynooth in ireland and yeah then and then durham. and then we were going to durham and by the time we got to durham uh well in maynooth our concert was maybe for about seven people because everyone had left the school by that point mm-hmm. uh and then when we got to durham they had decided that we could do student readings just sort of socially distant student readings uh with the exception of one person who had health concerns and didn't come. So we just recorded it for them and they canceled our concert. And then we were supposed to go to city university, London, uh, to do some work, student pieces and a concert. And at that point, London, this was supposed to be on the 18th. At that point, the cases were really spiking in London and the government was still saying, uh, everything's fine. Everybody just go out and enjoy yourselves. And you're oh, thinking- it's the, it's the stiff upper lip of keep calm and carry on. It's gonna be fine. Oh my God. I'm it w- so sorry. <laughs> it was insane. So we we called up our, our people at, at City University and we said, uh, we feel like it would be irresponsible for us to try and get 50 people in a small room right now. You know, it's not going to be, you know, it's new music where 50 people is optimistic sometimes, but they are going to be definitely in a small room and definitely indoors. And we're going to have the HVAC off because our music is super quiet. So this is not safe. And we said, can we just do, uh, can, can you cancel the concert for us? You know, uh, and luckily they were able to do that. And we decided that we would, uh, you know, we had all these student pieces that we were supposed to do readings for people. And as we said before, if we don't do them, literally no one will ever, probably. <laughs> so we uh, sat down in the conference room of the Ramada off the M1 outside of London and uh, managed to convince the uh, proprietor there to let us use that room, which was, I guess, set, set up to be rented by like uh, oil companies or something all day, every day, but they weren't going to be there. So... We, we begged and pleaded and we sat down with our phones 
and recorded, did video recordings of what we do for a student reading. So we played through the piece, we talked about it, we gave them some options or ideas, try this different thing, try this different thing. And we edited them together and, and sent them uh, video files. Meanwhile, we were all uh, on the phone for, how, how long would you say you were on the phone dealing with flights, Andy? Oh, with Delta, uh, it was hours, only to find that like when I finally got to the airport, because Jeff, Jeff and Adrian and Will all left about, we were all supposed to leave at the same time. Delta had canceled my flight and then I called and they said like, no, 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 we'll fix it. Everything's cool. And they didn't fix it. And then they finally fixed it. And then I got to the airport and it was canceled. They just didn't tell me. Nice. Wow. <laughs> so it was like, it was, but for all of us, it was just, we, the, the amount of time we all spent trying to talk to a human at Delta <laughs> from a hotel yeah. on some highway in the UK. It was just like, <sighs> And then having to drink bad beer at night. Bad beer. You just don't know where to go for the good beer. My friend, we have our real ale. <laughs> <laughs> to take this conversation a slightly different route, uh, is there a difference between the role new music plays in the music field? So the difference between playing in a university versus playing on the mini ha-ha in Lake George, which I know you guys did beautifully a couple of seasons ago. Obviously, there's all of the musicians from the program who are partying and drinking tequila, but there's also a lot of people who have probably not listened to new music in this way before. And I sort of, how do you find the different approaches to performing for those groups? I, I think for us, um, the there's no distinction in terms of like the performative aspect of it we're gonna play and we're gonna play the same way um i think for us the main thing that changes is how we program or how we think about programming um because our, our goal is to be like when we're playing a concert we want that concert to be an honest representation of who we are as an ensemble the pieces that we're working on the pieces we're playing the music we feel strongly about um but I think different performances, different audiences, different presenters require slightly different framing. Um, we have found, I think, um, let's see if Jeff agrees with me, that we can really perform extraordinarily weird stuff for a fairly conservative audience, right? Who maybe hasn't heard anything like that before or is open to it, but doesn't have a lot of exposure. Mm -hmm. um, and if you talk about it in a certain way, if you're excited about it, if you um, convey an enthusiasm for the work you're doing, I think you're much more likely to get people on board. Even if they don't totally get it, um, they are seeing that you are enjoying what you're doing and feeling strongly about it. And that reads. Um, so, I, yeah, so I, I mean, I, that's in terms of the way I think about it or how those different things influence me as a performer. I think as long as we're framing it, we can really kind of do just we can we can stay true to what we are as an ensemble in the music we do we don't have to like come in with arrangements of radiohead or something <laughs> yeah um i i think the way that we talk about the work how much we talk you know it all it all depends on concert setting if there's programs if there's an expectation of it being a little more casual or something those those will change the way that we we think about a show um but i think we we end up talking mostly the same way still i think it's uh we try and give people an in you know we try and have we think about like openers and closers of like what's going to grab people in in this setting 
you know, what's going to send people off with a certain feeling or, or, you know, what will prepare people for a certain sound. We have some really, really quiet pieces, some really, really loud pieces. How do we deal with people's attention through something like that? Um, and I think, you know, we just, it, it serves nobody to like water down art. Like there's no, you know, if we decide, oh, we're doing this show for this audience, we should really make it, uh, you know, accessible or something. You know, accessibility is important when you're talking about like ramps on sidewalks and elevators, you know, <laughs> so human beings can get in there. But accessibility in terms of like level of complexity of art, I really, uh, I, I think that's a, a terrible thing to be looking at and a terrible thing to do if it means that you're changing what what kind of doing. If we do something that we don't fully believe in, why are we doing this? It's not like we're getting a paycheck with a ton of zeros on it at the end of the day, you know. We're, we're, we're making art because we care about it. And then, you know, why give something that we don't care about to, to people? We do get interesting reactions. Uh, sometimes they're, they're very fun, like actually at Lake George. What was the, do you remember the verbatim line that the person who heard Applebaum at Lake George said to the person who was running the festival? Oh, uh, <laughs> it, I don't remember the verbatim line, but it was essentially something like, uh, why do you present this garbage? They said that we were destroying. I think they said we're destroying art, or we're doing a disservice. Yeah, maybe? yeah, yeah. We're doing a disservice to to music. <laughs> I believe. All right. So I don't know. I'm I'm happy with that. I think that's great. <laughs> You're eliciting a reaction. That's good. That's what you want to be doing. Yeah, yeah. That's better than that's better than nothing. But I mean, a strong reaction like that is really interesting to me because. Uh, what is the avant-garde for if people are like, mm, ah, yes, you know, what's, what's the point? What's the point of that? I think art that makes people uh, engage with not understanding as a valid aesthetic experience is really important. I think it's also kind of fun too, like for <laughs> specifically about the Apple bomb, because we all love that piece so deeply and have so much fun with it. So when it elicits that kind of strong response, um that's fun like it, it's not actually um it doesn't make me necessarily sad right like if if we got booed that would make me a little bit sad but having like <laughs> one 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 older gentleman go like rabble 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 i think is great as someone who has um run a quite a few of my own chamber ensembles, academies, conferences, as well as being a career advisor. I've always had this interest in the real life skills that we need in addition to music skills to be able to organize some of these events. So could each of you provide one skill that you think is crucial for running a chamber ensemble? And did you have this skill already or did you have to develop it? Um, I, th I would say communication the ability to communicate um and you know that that means like communicating to your to your peers that means communicating um like with colleagues for for us you know specifically in terms of load bang but i also um i co-direct divergent studio which is a summer new music program at Longi, and i co-direct the new music ensemble and i'm the chair of winds and brass up there and um so 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 much of what i'm doing outside of like playing trumpet 
is trying to communicate clearly things that I need to communicate to people, right? Um, and sometimes I do a good job with that and sometimes I do a bad job. Uh, I think that in terms of you asked, is that a skill that you already had? Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, I, I think that like I'm lucky in that I'm, I'm, I'm okay with people. Like I can communicate well with people. I can talk. I can, I feel like I can empathize and understand and communicate the idea that I need to get across. Um, one of the things I think though that I've been working on is making sure that like <laughs> the things that are in my head and I think should be obvious to people that this is the way things need to get done because doing it a different way is bad. Um, I need to, like one of the things I've been working on is making sure that I am actually communicating what my expectations are and what my hopes are um, more explicitly because I found that if I don't do that, then I get a result that isn't what I was hoping for, but it also isn't fair for me to expect a result I was hoping for without communicating what it is that that result that I expect is right. Mm -hmm. um, Crucial to teaching as well, right? Oh my God, absolutely. Um, and I think a, a lot of that too ends up being, um, and this I, I think ties in, this is closely related to communication, maybe a subgenre of communication is um, the ability to delegate and then communicate clearly to the person you're delegating to exactly what it is you need them to do right so it all stems from this idea of of communicating clearly um whether it's with your presenters or um you know people running a people running a festival which are the same as presenters uh but but then communicating with colleagues how are we communicating with each other in rehearsal are we communicating in an honest and open way um so that we're actually getting good work done and staying friends or you know like the you know, these sort of things I think are really important. I would say uh, bookkeeping. Mm -hmm. And that is a skill that I did not have before. But um, as as someone who directs an ensemble and deals with all the money with it, uh, to know how to do double entry accounting and and keep good track of where our money is going and where it's coming from. So when it comes time for grants, I'm not like scrambling to invent a budget that looks like what I think happened, but I have real, uh, real good records of everything. That's a skill that I've found really important and helpful uh, that I did not have uh, before I started doing this. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. It's amazing how much the importance of money, both the in and out, usually the out more than in, um, <laughs> is, is crucial to an ensemble or a group. And um, sometimes there's un unexpected expenses as well that you really need to keep track of. Yeah, I honestly, I think every, I think every kid in college should have this, but every musician and artist especially should have a, a compulsory class on taxes. I have a wonderful tax man. I just give everything to him. That's what I need to do this afternoon, actually. Um, but just go, <laughs> hi, make make this shiny for me, please. But I would have no idea how to yeah, do it on my own. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's kind of like, I, I think there's a lot of similarities between um, between sports and music. Mm. This is probably also just because I love sports. And so I find <laughs> these similarities. Um, but it's, I, I think it's a similar thing where you have these like baseball players that come out and they've never been taught personal finance, right? Because yeah. they've been like focusing on baseball. 
in the same way that we have like you're a great clarinetist you did all the right things you went all to the all to all the right schools and you've been focusing so hard on clarinet and then you get out of school and you have to file taxes but haven't kept track of a single thing and don't even really know what write-offs are right yeah. it's like kramer and seinfeld talking about like these companies they just write it off you just write it off um but yeah i mean i i think that this idea of like personal finance for young musicians or personal finance for ensembles, which I mean, they're similar, right? They're complementary skills, I think is a is for sure a very important thing that is not, often is not explicitly taught, right? You may have some sort of career development thing. Like I teach a career development class at Longi and we talk about it for a day, which is great because there's so much other stuff that we have to talk about. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's so, it's, you know, it's it's a hundred percent essential, especially if you don't like want to get audited, right? Yeah, and I I think there's there's a certain financial expectation with, I mean, you start off with it with an ensemble too, but especially as an individual in school, you're like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna get an opera job, or I'm gonna get an orchestra job, and then it's just like, and and then we're all set. But the reality is, you know, we're we're yeah. gonna work a hundred <laughs> different jobs in uh you know a hundred different places and some of them are w2 and some of them are 1099 some people hand you cash in envelope and some people barter you know with food and drink <laughs> like what the 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 complications of actually trying to make a life once you're out of school are uh kind of insurmountable and massive so it's you know having having some ways to keep that under control <sighs> really yeah, important yeah. So just to wrap up, thank you so much, guys, for giving us all um, all of this time. But we wanted to finish with one final question, which is, if there was something that you could do over, what would it be? I think that's that's a that's a very difficult question. I mean, there's obviously like a hundred super heavy answers <laughs> to that, uh, but no, no, I. I would maybe in the in terms of like career and schooling things, I wish that I practiced when I was in school. I've had that uh, from so many people. I didn't people. do. <laughs> I didn't do. I didn't do quite uh, enough of that. But I also feel like I also didn't learn how to practice until I was out of school, and nobody taught me how to do it. Uh, so I blame everyone else. And, <laughs> no accountability. Uh, I'll just leave it there. Yeah. Yeah, the school thing is interesting because it's like, especially now being in academia, right? Like now teaching and doing, uh, you know, working with mostly master's students is I, um, I see me in them and the things that they're doing. I think partially too, because I'm like not that much older than them. I, they, I mean, I'm ancient to them. Like, <laughs> so you're going, no, bald, I was in this position like. I'm a bald old person <laughs> to them. But to me, we're really not that far apart. Uh <laughs> I, I think that I um, was so myopic in terms of like the reason that I'm in school is to play the trumpet, uh, which was good in some ways because it meant that like I spent every second I could with my teacher. I was practicing all the time. My friends and I were practicing all the time. We got really good together and we're all like a bunch of us are doing all sorts of stuff on trumpet now. Um, but I also realized when I got out of my master's that I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. uh, like I knew a lot about trumpet, 
but there was like I didn't pay attention in a single theory or history class because <laughs> I was just like thinking about getting out to go play trumpet, right? Um, so I ended up having to do and still am like a lot of catch up work, right? So a couple years after my master's, I for Christmas I asked my mom and dad to get me the complete Oxford history, the Taruskin. And oh so, no, you're reminding us of taking comps. No. Oh, you guys just took comps. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's very traumatic. <laughs> Uh, you know, so I, I wish that like, especially at Eastman, um, you know, the certain aspects of the academics at MSM leave, leave something to be desired, but at Eastman, um, the academics were so good. Right. And I had access to like, my theory teacher was Steve Lates, but I didn't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yeah. so now I like, I look at his theory book and I'm like, God, if only I had listened to the words that were coming out of his mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I think uh in terms of like looking back i think if i would have thought of my education as being a little bit more well-rounded well to wrap up uh i just want to say a huge thank you to half of load bang we have jeff and andy uh we've had jeff and andy with us this morning as we've been recording and you guys are awesome thank you so much for entertaining us <laughs> with all your stories yeah, and thanks for Thanks for having I, us. Absolutely. We're going to put all the links to your socials and your website and stuff in the show notes. But do you have any things that you want to shout out whilst we're whilst we're on air? The power chest or something we're really, really excited about. Um, hopefully we'll just keep doing it uh, until we can play concerts together and maybe after. Um, are these being recorded? Can people see them afterwards? These are all, yeah, they're all being recorded. They're all on our YouTube channel after. So we do them on Facebook Live and then post the video to YouTube afterwards. A single, single unit that costs a sum. In the blocker. But they differ at least by the position. Which they, which they occupy in space, and and yet they must be, be somehow, be somehow, distinct, somehow distinct. from from one, from one, from another. Since otherwise they would, they would merge into into a single, a single, single unit. Let us assume that all the ship in the flock are identical. But they differ at least by the... Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, we hope that you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. You can find links to the music by Loadbang featured in today's podcast in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Adam Cordell, hosted by Rosanna Moore, and engineered by Blair Kerner with music by Evan Henry. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.